Today, my cup is overflowing, and I am flying, nay, soaring, on the wings of gratitude and love. And how could it be otherwise? Here I am, at the pulpit of this meeting house of hope and memory, in the middle of Cambridge, where so much of the history of our faith had taken place. It seems that it one quiets the soul and mind, and listen carefully. One could almost hear the footsteps of those giants who labor so hard, so passionately, and so faithfully to establish many places like this parish, first parish, where people can come to discover and act on their inner strengths, their compassion, their fire for social justice, and their love for self and neighbor, and where all can establish or increase their deep connection with the source of all, with that constant in our lives, the mysterious tremendum. Cambridge, Massachusetts. Who could have told me that one day I will be walking these streets, immersing myself in the spirit and history of my beloved faith? Better yet, could have told me that today I would be here as your candidate for the coveted position of associate minister, ready to be in partnership with your senior minister, envisioning with all of you this meeting in this meeting house, filled with eager seekers, awful political and skin colors, from all walks of life, of all sexual orientations and degrees of body abilities, and all dream all young and old, and in between, totally culturally literate and competent. How far in the past seemed those days of my childhood in Colombia, when night after night, looking at the stars, I would wonder what they, what they were made of and who or what had put them there. In fact, I went to college with the intention of becoming an astronomer to decipher the secrets of the stars. I'm sure you can recall the period in your life when you started your own questing, your own questioning and wondering about this awesome universe. Like me, you probably ask, how did life originate? What is it that determines the coding, the coding in our genes? Will the universe end, and in so, how and when? After having experienced life as being surrounded by mystery, immersed in paradox, enticed and let down by illusion, taken to the highest peaks of glory and love, only to be dropped without mercy into the deepest pits of horror and despair, the questioning increased as now I also ponder on the complexities of being human. Trini Sagardata expressed in a most profound way the extremes of human, the human predicament does. Love tells me that I am everything. Wisdom tells me that I am nothing. And between the two, my life flows. To ease ourselves into the flow of our lives, it seems that we need to grapple with and find some answers to questions such as, to whom or what do I owe my existence? What is my place in the universe? Is there a purpose for it all, including me? 
And so, what is that purpose? Fortunately, sometimes unexpected answers come to us, bringing peace in what had been called moments of grace. I remember a day, one day, having the, re the realization that although it was nice to have allies in my spiritual journey, when it came to communicate with the divine, no one needed to have uh, to go through saints or angels since direct communication seems to be the better way. And soon, after becoming a Unitarian Universalist during a service in which we did the meditation time standing up and holding hands, I felt a strong connection with everybody there. As I closed my eyes to intensify that connection, everything disappeared, just like with little Theodore. I just, I just didn't see anything. It was like I was floating. And then this voice said to me, for this moment was worth to having been born. We are all one. And that was in a Unitarian Universalist service, mind you. Not contented with a few great answers, however, stubborn that I used to be, I turned for a time to scientists and philosophers in hope that they could once and for all give me all the answers. Oh, yeah. I was so eager reading Stephen Hawking's famous A Brief Story of Time, finally thinking somebody is going to give me the real truth. And you know what? He instead answers this question, uh, ask this question. What is it that breathes fire into the equations and makes a universe for them to describe? What is it that breathes fire into the equations? Anybody here knows? Some of you may recall that he ends his book thus. If we find the answer to why is it that we and the universe exist, it will be the ultimate triumph of human reason, for then we will know the mind of God. The following statement by, by biologist and theologian Lauren Isley enticed me to continue my search. He says, if that matter has reared up this curious landscape of fiddling crickets, song sparrows, and wandering men, it must be plain even to the most devoted materialist that the matter of which he speaks contains amazing, if not dreadful powers. And it may possibly, possibly be that this matter is but one mask of many worn by the great face behind. When in seminary I learned about the transcendentalist movement, I knew instantly that I had come home. I knew that aided by its core beliefs, I could confidently someday find both my own connection to the great face behind the masks and integrate in my theology the epiphanies that I had already. The first source of our living tradition perfectly describes the essence of transcendentalism. This source, which is the direct experience of that transcending mystery and wonder, affirmed in all cultures, which move us to the renewal of the spirit and an openness to the forces which create and uphold life, 
says that all human possess an innate capacity for religious knowledge or intuition of God. Likewise, the sixth source of our living tradition, the spiritual teachings of earth-centered traditions which celebrate the sacred circle of life and instruct us to live in harmony with the rhythms, rhythms of nature, contains another core belief of the transcendentalist path. Ralwaldo Emerson, the supreme American transcendentalist, write, writes in his book, Nature, which has been labeled the gospel of transcendentalism, the following. Nature as a whole is a sacramental symbol conveying grace and capable of leading man onward to mystical ecstasy or a spiritual communion with the ultimate reality. For Emerson, nature's highest ministry to humans is to confront us with divinity by unlocking the divinity within our own breast to serve as a kind of burning bush or channel for the beatific vision. Emerson's call for the full development of the latent divinity in the individual often put him in collision with the political and even with the religious establishment. The child subject of our story for all ages today, Theodore Parker, grew to be a major transcendentalist who, in the words of historian David B. Park, was in many ways the most remarkable leader produced by the Unitarian movement in America, an intellectual giant, a commanding preacher and emancipator, second only to Abraham Lincoln, in stature and influence. Parker lived and died as the conscience of American Unitarianism. Parker's sermons in favor of the rights of women were famous. In one of them, he said, examining the matter philosophically and historically, it seems clear that woman is man's equal, individually and socially entitled to the same rights. And elsewhere, talking about women's participation in politics, he said, I had demanded that she should decide that question for herself, choose her own place of action, have her vote in all political matters, and be eligible to any office. One wonders, would he have voted for Hillary Clinton? Theodore Parker was the first minister who in public prayer addressed God both, both as father and mother. And it was he who, in his speech, The American Idea, delivered May 29, 1850, defined democracy thus. A democracy that is a government for all the people, by all the people, for all the people, of course, a government of the principles of eternal justice, the unchanging law of God. For shortness' sake, I will call it the idea of freedom. As you may well realize, Lincoln liked this definition so much that he used it with a slight modification in his Gettysburg address. Margaret Fuller, called the preeminent feminist thinker of her day, took the transcendentalist principles and developed them into a thorough case for women's rights. What a woman needs is not as a woman to act or rule, but as a nature to grow, 
as an intellect to discern, as a soul to lead freely and unimpeded to unfold such powers as were given to her. Her love for truth is evident in her writings, says she, truth at all costs, and may truth unpolluted by prejudice, vanity, or selfishness be granted daily more and more as the due of inheritance and only valuable conquest for all. She expressed her longing for freedom, so characteristic of some transcendentalists, in the following question and call to action. Why bind oneself to a central or any doctrine? Let us be wise and not impede the soul. Let her work as she will. Let us have one creative energy, one incense and revelation. Let it take what form it will, and let us not bind to the past, to man or woman, black or white. During a meeting that I attended at the Arlington, Arlington Street Church in Boston, I saw the original of a handwritten declaration against the Mexican-American War. This document was signed by 144 people, including their minister, the transcendentalist, James Freeman Clark. Here is an excerpt that I copied from that document. We, the, the undersigned, wish by a solemn declaration to free ourselves as far as possible from the responsibility of the war of invasion now waged by the United States against Mexico. We take this step because we believe this war to be unjust and inhuman and to be carried on for the last of territory and for the extension of slavery. It is important to remember that Mexico was against slavery. The transcendentalists were at the forefront in all spheres of social action, tackling with relentless and courageous determination the worst evils of their time. Slavery, war, inequality be between the sexes, and lack of just practices in the workplace. They rejected supernaturalism, the miracles of Jesus, and his divinity. Although their individual outlooks about politics and established religion were different in many cases, they all share an unshakable conviction that all humans possess an innate capacity for religious knowledge or intuition of God. For these and other ideas, they were labeled theological and religious revolutionaries, and their movement was considered by many a revolt in the mid-19th century against the New England Unitarianism. What disciplines sustained the transcendentalists in their quest for truth and meaning? How did they nurture, nurture their spiritual life? Just as many of us today, they engage in common practices such as excursions in nature, contemplation, reading, journal writing, and organized conversations and discussions of important issues of the day. Now, the fact that I chose to share in my first sermon to you my happiness at having found my true spiritual home among the transcendentalists should take you how much I treasure this finding. Every time I talk about this happiness, though, or when I hear others all excited at having found their own spiritual home in our faith, 
When I visit churches and fellowships and observe people all abuzz during the social hour, or when a general assembly or district assemblies, I see passionate delegates busy between the pro and the, mic and the con microphones, debating what statement of conscience is more earth-shattering and worth approving for action, a wave of sadness comes over me. For what on earth, I ask myself, is preventing us from filling our meeting houses and sanctuaries with the thousands of seekers who right now, like us before finding Unitarian Universalism, long and pray for a faith like this? Why, I despair, we the champions of social justice who are generous enough to invite the downtrodden to our soup kitchens, that we march for their causes, display big banners for uh, equality. Why, I ask, are we so cautious and scared to invite them into our worship houses, into our social halls to mingle with us? Why deny them even the possibility of joining our congregations and benefiting from our liberating soul-healing faith? Why are we so quiet about bringing others to our faith? Today, however, I have no, no reason for despair. We, you, and I are all engaged in a most exciting ministerial courtship of sorts. And this has been one amazing courtship. Not even Sang has been able to top this. Flowers, chocolate, basket of caring, treats, uh, greetings, emails, I am totally, totally overwhelmed and thankful. We are beginning our candidating week, hoping that next Sunday we resolve to join our hearts and souls to continue with renovated vigor the glorious task of growing this beloved congregation into a multicultural, multi-ethnic, truly diverse, justin-making congregation. May we all have the courage to make this vision a reality. May we all avail ourselves of science and theology and nature walks and whatever other means we might need in order to pursue with persistence and joy, with passion and freedom, the search for truth and meaning. May we all be blessed with the willingness to be attentive to our own inner intuition, allowing the transcending mystery and wonder to gift us with many revelatory moments. May we all love each other. May we all keep on dreaming, keep on acting to become what we dream to be. Amen and blessed be.